Good morning, everybody. Hope everybody's doing all right this morning. We are going to be, once again, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning as we are nearing the end of our series through 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4 if you would like to go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So one thing that uh, having a newborn at home reminds me of is that children, or shall I say humans, are the most helpless creature uh, when it comes to newborns. If you've ever noticed, we went to the zoo yesterday with the boys in Waco, the Cameron Park Zoo, and if you've ever seen any other animals, they have like a, a baby orangutan there that was like hanging upside down. Um, and, and babies from, from other animals, sometimes they come out walking, uh, like horses or giraffes. Uh, but no matter, even, even the ones that don't come out uh, as functional as that, you think like maybe a little baby kitten or a baby puppy or something like that, even those know more than what a human baby knows. It is a scientific fact that the human is the most helpless of all newborns. Uh, you're completely dependent upon other people. Uh, that's obvious to those of you who, who have had children, obvious to those of you who've had children recently or have grandchildren recently, uh, to know that that child is completely, wholly dependent upon his parents. And in a way, it's a metaphor for the way that we ought to be dependent upon Christ. The same way that a child is dependent upon mom and dad for all needs, we ought to be dependent upon Christ that way as well. And I say we ought to as if we aren't, and we have the choice. Uh, The truth is that we don't have the choice. We are that dependent upon Christ. With every breath that we take, we are dependent upon the grace of God to sustain us from moment to moment. With every thought that we think, with every future aspiration that we have for our own lives as well as an eternity with Christ in heaven, we are wholly dependent upon Jesus Christ for that. The cells in our bodies and the way that they they, they, they reproduce and the way that we continue to move forward and continue to exist and survive every single process that keeps us alive and keeps us healthy and keeps us sane is wholly dependent upon the creator who knit us together in our mother's wombs. We are wholly dependent upon God. We are. It's not really a choice. But we have the choice to realize that, to live in that, to rejoice in our dependence, total dependence upon God. Now, even though Kai, our newborn, is completely and wholly dependent upon us for life and for survival, he really doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Like, he really doesn't care. If you've ever been around a screaming child, you know that to be the case. They don't care if it's, if it's embarrassing you. They don't care if it's um, causing somebody else to be annoyed. Uh, they don't care if they're getting attention, if people are looking at you. Uh, they don't care about any of that. They don't even care if those other people hear. All of that is solely for the reaction from mom or dad to come fix the situation, to come change the diaper, to come offer a bottle, to come nurture and try to put to sleep. They don't care what anybody else thinks. They just care what mom and dad can do for that situation. Now, this is the way we, metaphorically speaking, ought to operate with the world. While we are completely and wholly dependent upon God, we are also to be independent, radically so, from the ways of this world, to where we depend only on Jesus Christ for all our sustenance and for every single need that we have, and we do not look to meet those needs from elsewhere in the world. 
So when Christ calls us to be Christ-like, or when Christ calls us to be childlike, and that's how we ought to enter the kingdom of God, as if we are a child and having him in that way, I see this metaphor at play. To be wholly dependent upon God for everything and to be wholly independent upon the world, not looking to the world to meet our needs. Christ is sufficient for us, sufficient enough to render the world in a way unnecessary. So this morning, what I want to put before you is this idea, as we'll see in Paul's writing in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians that we ought to be radically dependent upon God and radically independent from the world. Thus far in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have looked at Paul and his rejoicing over his connections with the church in Thessalonica, with the believers there. Every time he thinks of them, he rejoices. And it caused us to look inwardly and consider what are we known for. That's how the Thessalonians were known by Paul and others in the world around them to the degree that they would tell him about the wonderful things that they had heard of Thessalonica. Are we known for having that same spirit? Yes, there will be people who look bad at the church always through all generations. But by and large, are we known as the people who are on fire for Christ, on mission for Christ as the church in Thessalonica was? In chapter 2, we saw Paul talk about how he wanted to give himself away to the Christians in Thessalonica. That he didn't just want to give give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he also wanted to give them his very self. And we asked the question, are we willing to do that in our own lives? Are we willing to give ourselves away so that others might see and hear the gospel in and through us? And then last week when we were together... We talked about the encouragement that Paul received because of his connections to the Thessalonians. And that even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of discouragement that he talks about in chapter 3, that when he heard the good news that Timothy brought back from the report of what was going on in Thessalonica, that it caused him to rejoice. And in every distress, he said, he rejoiced because of the good news that he heard about the church in Thessalonica. And how for us as believers in this world, it, it reminds us that That good news for the mission of Christ anywhere is good news for the mission of Christ everywhere. And we should celebrate the good news of Jesus and his church from the uttermost parts of the earth to our own neighboring believers here in this very community. And here in chapter 4, Paul, you can almost look at the first like three chapters as him building up and him him not moving to the point of teaching, but him, him giving a long introduction about how excited he is about the church in Thessalonica. And then in chapter 4, he begins to give some instruction. On the first part, verses 1 through 8, he addresses some immorality issues that are going on there probably. Uh, there also seems to be this undercurrent of not growing lackadaisical in your faith. Some scholars believe that the Thessalonians were not for sure, but some believed they had this problem where they were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. You've probably heard that phrase before. Uh, that they were so excited about the second coming of Jesus that many of them supposedly just thought they would kind of wait and hang out and, and hope that he came quickly. Uh, not necessarily work hard, toil hard while they were on the earth. Now, again, that's not said like obviously, that's just something scholars believe, but that does seem to be something of, of, of truth to that idea that they needed to be pushed to move forward and reminded to continue to work hard for what Christ had called them to. And that's kind of right in the middle of that where we pick up this morning. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. But before we read that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your spirit. 
God, we thank you for being here. And God, for inviting us into communion with you this morning. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And God, the way that you speak to us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. God, that you would remove distraction in such a way, God, that you would allow us to hear, to see, to understand what it is you're seeking to tell us through your word this morning. And then, God, I pray that through your spirit, God, that you implant that word within us in such a way that it brings transformation. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes these words in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this and to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. On the big things like brotherly love, the voice of God is the only voice that matters. Paul points that out quickly. He didn't feel the need to go through a speech on brotherly love because God had already taught the Thessalonians to love one another. One of the basics of our faith, to love God and to love each other. Now, this is obvious that this was not needed, that Paul did not need to write some long soliloquy over brotherly love because the Thessalonians were already loving each other, were already showing love to their fellow believers all throughout the area in which they lived in Macedonia. All that Paul asked of the Thessalonians is for them to keep up the good work, to continue doing it more and more. Again, there's that prodding, to not grow lackadaisical in their faith, but to keep moving forward, to not get to that point where they say, oh, we're awesome, because he's heaped a lot of praise on them to this point. And the temptation, whenever you're getting praised, you know this to be the case, right? The temptation when you're getting praised all the way from when you were a child to today is to sit back and just enjoy the praise and say, yes, I'm there, I've made it. I'm glad somebody finally realized how awesome I am and all the great work that I've done. I think I can now rest and relax and enjoy the spoils of all the work that I've done all these years. That is not the Christian mission. That is not the word of God nor the word of Paul. Instead, he he tells them, continue to do it. More and more. Yes, you've done a great job at showing love to each other. You've done a great job of showing love to other Christian bodies, to other churches throughout Macedonia. Now continue to do that. Keep on doing that more and more. And then he goes on to make the larger point in the rest of the the scripture that we read. He says to aspire, to live quietly, and then he goes on with some other things. But I want to focus on that word aspire to My English standard version says to aspire to, but the Greek word behind there is more of like make it your ambition. And I only say that because ambition to me sounds stronger than aspire. Have aspirations, that's almost like hopes, right? Like like whimsical hopes or I aspire to be a, a professional football player someday. You might have said as a kid or I aspire to be a movie actor or a musician. You know, like I wish that that would happen. That's what I think of anyway. And maybe that's just the own, my own connotation of the word aspire in my mind. But when I think of ambition... I think of someone who fights tooth and nail for what they want. And a lot of times in scripture, ambition comes off as a bad thing, 
right? Ambition comes off as something that's focused on something other than God. But the word that's being used here is to make it your ambition, to strive to do this. So in a way, Paul is like kind of signaling and saying to the Thessalonians, hey, here is what the focus of your life should be. Here is one of the main focal points of what it looks like to live the life that Christ has called you to live within your community. Make it your ambition. Now, if someone was reading this letter for the very first time or listening to it being read out loud, which often happened with Paul's letters, they likely expected some bold command to come from Paul's pen next. Make it your ambition to save the world. Make it your ambition to see that every person within Thessalonica comes to know Christ. Make it your ambition to see that the entire Roman Empire is given over to Christendom. Make it your ambition to save the entire world. Maybe that's what they were thinking. But Paul's words are aspire to or make it your ambition to what? Live quietly. That doesn't seem like it would come after ambition. Being ambitious and living quietly seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes, not the same thing. But Paul says to ambitiously live quietly. To make it your ambition to live quietly. There is a misconception in our world that following Christ always means doing something big and bold that garners the attention of other people and garners the attention of the rest of the world. Let me clue you in on a little secret, and many of you probably know this already. Some of the greatest saints, some of the greatest servants of Christ that have ever existed in this world have already been forgotten completely. There are people who never knew their names. You're never going to know their names. And maybe they served Christ so well and so secretly that they weren't even known in their day. Perhaps they didn't have a family that was there to lift them up or a church that was there to celebrate their wins and they were serving God boldly on their own within their own circle of life to a a degree that it made a difference in the kingdom of God but not a difference in the kingdom of the world, at least as far as we could see with our own eyes. Some of the greatest saints are people that you will never hear of. Some of the greatest believers, even of our day, will stay in the shadows while others stand in front of crowds. It's not that standing in front of a crowd is bad, but it is to show that it is not a measure of success how well we are known. It is not a measure of success of how much the world, even the Christian world, looks at us and says, look at what that person has done. Make it your ambition to live quietly, Paul says. Again, it's oxymoronic in a way, but Paul is basically saying, be boldly normal. Be boldly normal. Like where you are, live in that space on fire for Christ. Where you are. Don't worry about saving the world. That's God's job. Worry about loving your neighbor, serving Christ in your day-to-day life. Now, this doesn't mean that we're quiet about Jesus. We're most certainly not quiet about Jesus. But what Paul is essentially saying to the Thessalonians is to serve Christ right where you are and don't worry about how much attention you get from those around you. Don't worry about any praise that you might get from the world. Make it your ambition, aspire to live quietly. And he continues, and to mind your own affairs. (coughs) Once again, it's that idea of doing what you do 
for the glory of the Lord. Be where you are first. Don't let the voices that are around you set your priorities. Again, it's God's job to save the world. He has commanded us to love our neighbors. You ever notice that when, when God gave the greatest commandments, right? When he was explaining to us what we were to do, uh, he said to love God with everything that you have and, and to love each other, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. Why did he start with neighbor? Because we always want to make it about this big, huge mission. And yes, that is absolutely the case. But like I've said already, and like I believe the Bible teaches, is that is God's job and God's realm. It is his job to save the world. What he has called us to do is to love who? Our neighbors. To love the people that he has arranged us with. Now, we like to talk a lot about the providence of God and how God and all of his wisdom has made us exactly like we are on purpose that he made us with all of our little personality traits, all the quirks that we have within our being, that he put us together just like that so that he could use us how he wants to. Uh, But don't you think that location is probably also within God's providence? That he put you right where you are right now, that you were born into the family in which you were born, that you were born into the community in which you were born, went to the school that you went to? That you directed your path along the way and that somehow, some way, you ended up in Grandview, Texas as a member or attender of this very church? Do you not think that God's providence is at work in that as well? And that God has you right where he wants you. Why? Well, he's told us why. Because he wants us to love God and to love who? Our neighbors. The people around us. And so Paul is saying, with ambition, make it your aspiration, make it your ambition to live quietly, not to garner attention from other people, and to mind your own affairs, to serve God with bold normalcy right where you are, here and now. Yes, there are big things at work in the world, but our first job is to love and care for our neighbor. Make it your ambition, Paul continues to also work with your hands, to provide for yourself. Paul was sure to do this in his own life. And he reminded the people to whom he wrote that he took care of things on his own so that no one would ever think that he was preaching the gospel for selfish gain. That he was doing so so that people would pay him money. Because there were many people traveling the world at that time that were doing that sort of thing. And Paul wanted to make sure that they knew that wasn't his game. He said that he could have asked for it, but he didn't. Instead, he wanted to make sure that the people knew and that the people understood that he was there solely for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we provide for ourselves in that same way we work with our hands. Now, Paul is speaking this into a particular world in which the nobility, in which the upper class, and it's not really so different from our world today, in which the upper class despised the idea of working with your hands. That was the job of an artisan. Now, in our day, anything that's made by an artisan is, is new and fun, and, and you'll find artisan as a, as a way to advertise bread in a grocery store or in a way to advertise some craft or something like that. By the way, those aren't made by artisans unless you call the machine like artisan 4.0, right? But the idea of artisan, it's someone who, who puts themselves into something, and that was the job of a, of a servant or a slave. And so to work with your hands was to be seen as as lower class in the Greek world, and those who had power and authority, they didn't work with their hands. They paid someone else to do that. Again, not a whole lot different from our world today, is it's not necessarily something that's looked highly upon manual labor, but if you're involved in manual labor on a day-to-day basis, you know the value of it. 
It's one of the things I love about our mission trip is we get to get our hands dirty. So we get to get in and work with our hands just as Christ commanded us to. It is a holy act to work with our hands to provide for ourselves within that way. The church should exist and thrive without any assistance from the outside world. Exactly what Paul says in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now he's not telling us not to be dependent on each other. That's, that runs against the message of scripture. We are to bear one another's burdens. You see the believers in the beginnings of the church in the early part of the book of Acts, that they would share everything with one another. They would take care of one another. They had a common pot and they would put into it. And then when someone had need that they would give to them out of that collective account. So there's, there's not an idea that you should be an island. Uh, you know, the, the philosopher was correct that no man is an island. That is absolutely true. And Paul is not suggesting that we should be. But he's suggesting that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be independent from our world, that we belong to a different way of life, to a different worldview, and even to a different kingdom, and we should be independent of the ties of this world. The goal is that those in the world would see the way that we live and that it would lead them to come to the realization that they don't need the things of this world. That, that, that there's this group of people over here who live a completely different way, who find significance in their relationship with God, who find self-worth in their relationship with God, who aren't looking to have their, their needs met or their spirits lifted by ways of this world, but for some reason, even though they aren't partaking of all these wonderful worldly things, they're over here joining together as one to the point that they're so happy that they're singing about how awesome their God is. And they come together and they worship and they break bread together and they spend time together and they, and then after they do that and after they, they, they come together and they rejoice and worship, then they go out and they do things for other people. They don't take from any of the, the things that this world would say should bring us joy or satisfaction. And yet they seem to be absolutely full of joy and satisfaction to the point that it is overflowing and they have to share it with someone else. This is the goal. Why we should live independent of the world, but wholly dependent upon Jesus Christ and his grace in our life from day to day. Most people in the world know, deep down, even if it's subconsciously, that they are slaves to something. And, and perhaps you feel it as well in our world. And in, in the way that it, on this side of heaven, we have to operate within the ways of this world sometimes, that it... If you have debt, I'm sure you feel a slave to that. I'm saying I'm sure because I'm with you. Uh, you know, I hope, I'm hoping Uncle Sam doesn't call the student loan card any time soon and, and gives me time to pay that off. I know how you can feel a slave to that. And it's beyond money as well. There are several things to which we can feel slave to the world. So many in the world, they, 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 they have this, 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 this hole within them that... that I believe is a God-shaped hole, but they don't necessarily see that, but there's something. There's this feeling of loneliness. There's this feeling of, of, of a need for significance. A, a basic word we might use for that is affirmation. The reminder that, that you do actually matter, 
that you do actually make a difference, that, that you are loved and that, that there is a point to you being on this planet. Much in our world are looking for something, even if they don't realize it, to fill that hole. And they might not realize it when they, when they go from, from, from boyfriend or girlfriend to boyfriend and girlfriend and moving around from relationship to relationship trying to fix that hole or they, they, they look to some kind of substance or, or a job or money or anything else to try to fill that gap. Much of our world, most of our world, and maybe it's not too much to say all of our world, even if it is subconscious, operates on that premise that there is something that they need, that they are a slave to this world and they are desperate for freedom. And that is what we have in Jesus Christ. Freedom. Absolute freedom from the ways of this world. We are a slave to sin no longer in Jesus Christ. We are a slave to our desires no longer in Jesus Christ. We are a slave to those things that the earth says will fill our hearts will fill our satisfaction, will fill that empty spot. We are a slave no longer to those things. And in our freedom, we submit freely to Jesus Christ and he fills every need, every longing of our soul. We get to model that freedom in Christ for the world. We resist what the world has and we turn to Jesus and to him alone. We are radically dependent upon God and radically independent from the world. So let us depend on God to meet all our needs and not the world. Like a baby needs its mother, we need God. We need to realize that fact and rejoice and live within that truth. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't care for each other that we don't lean on one another, but that we lean on Christ and his body, which is the church, and not the world, because the world will not satisfy. And you don't have to make a big splash. Serve God right where you are. Now look, I, I talked last week about how we should celebrate victories everywhere, even when we're not the hero. Now that's easier said than done, right? Because... Here's the truth about all of us. We're selfish people, right? Am I the only one? I'm pretty sure you're selfish too. Sorry, I hate to break it to you, but I'm pretty sure you are as well. Here's a test that I'm given and that I've found nearly to be 100%. Um, If you are looking at a picture that you know you're in, who's the first face that you look for? Your own, right? That's what happens. Maybe, maybe some of you are different, and maybe I am just that selfish. But even in a picture with my entire family, many of you saw, Cheryl posted a bunch on Facebook the other day that Angie Penix took. An excellent photographer can make anybody look good. We're proof. Um, but even in that picture where I know there's the, the, the woman that I find the most beautiful in the world, my wife, and then our three little boys who I find equally beautiful, handsome young men that I adore, all of them, I still looked for my ugly mug first. I still wanted to make sure before I said it's a good picture that I looked okay in the picture, right? Don't tell me I'm the only one. I know that, that all of us, anytime Cheryl comes to me and says, this is a great picture, I'm like, okay, so you look good in that picture. Let me see how everybody else looks in that picture, right? We're all selfish in that way that we look at life through our own lens. Is that not, I, don't, I don't know how we break that on this side of heaven, to be totally honest other than to become more and more like Christ every day. Perhaps someday we can be free from that. We can be more and more free of it every day, but to be fully free of being locked inside this body, I don't think is gonna happen until we meet Christ in glory. 
we look at the world through our own eyes. And when we do that, we want to be the hero of every story. Because we're certainly the hero of our own story. We are the protagonist of our own story. You know, if the narrator were following a person around in our story, it would be us. We would be the person on every single page of our own story. We look at life that way. And when we think about serving God, we automatically assume, and perhaps it's to a point in our American contemporary society that it's never been in the world in the past, and that's probably an overstatement, which just shows my selfishness, that we're the most selfish. Think about that. I'm arguing that, hey, you guys are selfish, but we're selfisher than anybody has ever been selfish. How American is that, right? We want to point to ourselves as being the most selfish of all time because we've got to set records. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. So we, we look at life that way, and, and we want to be the hero of our own story. And when we hear the mission of Jesus Christ, we want to give ourselves to that mission. But when we do that, and, and, and I, was, I was a young man, when I felt called into the ministry, I believed that God was calling me to be the next Billy Graham, to stand in front of thousands of people on a daily basis and to see many of them come down and give their lives to Jesus. I remember being as a young man at Texas Stadium before they tore it down in one of Billy Graham's last crusades and seeing literally thousands of people come on to the floor of Texas Stadium, even with rain falling through the hole in the roof and seeing the way that God was moving in that and saying, God, this is obviously what you're calling me to do. It's to stand on a stage and to be the hero of the story. Maybe not anymore, though. The more and more I realize and the deeper that my faith grows and the more comfortable I get in the way that God has called me particularly. Some of us, actually the large majority of us, 99.9% of Christians in the world, are called to live quietly, to be boldly normal, to be right where God has planted us, telling the people in our lives about who Jesus is and about what he has done for us. None of us in this room are likely to be the next Billy Graham. Statistically, that is the case. In our world, somebody might say that I'm a naysayer and I should never say anything like that because somebody has those kinds of aspirations and those ambitions. No, in the kingdom of heaven, the thing that we aspire to be and the ambition that we ought to have is to live quietly and humbly before our God and be used exactly where he planted us. Not to pull up our roots and move over here because it's more attractive. May we rejoice in our normalcy and realize that God, right here in our normal little lives in Grandview, Texas, might just make an eternal difference in the life of who? Our neighbors. And that that's why God has put us here. To be radically independent of the thought processes of this world that say we have to attract attention in order to be successful. No, all we need to do to be successful is to be obedient. God, in his infinite wisdom, put you right where you are to be on a mission for him right where you are. At home, at work, at school. I mentioned earlier our human need for affirmation. I have found that to be, any time that I have talked with someone, nearly universal. Particularly when I work with people going through arguments with each other, it usually comes to them each wanting to be affirmed by one another and not feeling affirmed by a spouse or a friend. And I had a, God spoke to me, I believe, through his Holy Spirit recently in my own life, something I'm learning to do. I'm not even close to being there yet. But when it comes to affirmation, finding my self-worth, that I should look to God alone for that. And that I should be able to, 
if everybody in this world turned their back on me, even my family, that I should be able to find affirmation in myself in Jesus Christ. To know that because of what he says about me, it doesn't matter what anybody else on this planet, even my closest relationships say about me, they can't undo what God has already done and what God has said. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. No person can change that. I should find my affirmation solely in who God is and who he has made me to be. While at the same time, I should seek to affirm everybody that I come into contact with. I should give away affirmation like I had it in busloads. I should be telling people how valued they are, how worthy they are. I should, by my actions and by my speech, tell people how much God loves them, how much his church loves them, how much I love them. I find my affirmation in God, and I get so full of that affirmation that I get to share it with other people and tell them who they are in Jesus Christ. And this ought to be our goal, to not look anywhere else for affirmation, but to give affirmation away to look solely to God and then to give it to others. To be wholly dependent upon God and radically independent from the world. This is what Paul has called us to be. And may we be that in this world. Why? As he said at the end, so that, so that others may see, so that the world may take notice and see that God is the only one who can meet the deepest needs of their heart and their soul. And if we live that way, and we speak that way, perhaps, just perhaps, our neighbors will as well. This morning, during our time of invitation, I encourage you to allow God to speak to you and to speak back to him and think about where you are. And I don't just mean like literally, location-wise, right now where you are, even where your address is. I mean that, but I also mean where you are in your stage of life, where you are and and what's going on in your life in this particular moment, your career, anything, where you are and how God might use you to minister quietly while taking care of your your own life and, 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 and providing for yourself and living quietly how God might use that quiet to make a big difference in somebody's life around you. Speak with God right now about this. Where are you right now and how might God use that to touch a neighbor? And if you need to pray about this or anything else, I'm down here to pray with you this morning and our altar is open if you would like to pray there. But let's stand together. I'm gonna pray after I pray. Bill and Lynn will lead us in a song of invitation and I encourage you to move in whatever way God is calling you to. Father, we thank you for today, once again. God, we thank you for your spirit. God, we thank you that you provide everything that we need, even the billions of things that we can't even think of, that you provide for us even in this second. God, we give glory and honor to you for always being our provision in every circumstance. God, we are wholly dependent upon you. God, I pray that you draw our minds closer to that truth daily to help us see how much we need you and for that to move us to humility and to rejoicing in what you have done. And God, I also pray 
God, that you would help us serve quietly. God, that you would show each and every person here this morning who has a saving relationship with you how you would call them in their own world to live quietly with ambition for your kingdom. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.